Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, a regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Natasha Brudy, who is a consultant on strategic communication and an advisor in the UN system. So very nice to make your acquaintance today, Natasha. Nice to meet you too, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have because the book we're going to be speaking about today is called Give Me Tea, Please. And some of the chapters you have chosen to use uh, parts of scripture to introduce the concept that you're going to be introducing. And so this got me looking back in the good book. And, and also you, you do quote from the book of Proverbs, and it, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes. So I thought we'd start our interview uh, with this, which is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So I hope that both of us uh, can share a little bit of wisdom and knowledge in this interview as well. You lay out very well in your introduction your motivations for writing this book, but could you give our listeners some of the background to what motivated you to produce this? Yeah, of course. So in, um, in the preface of my book, I started the book out with a very short story about some like the first few days of me living in Moscow, Russia. And I had moved there so that I could learn Russian to better help me with my work as a humanitarian advisor within the UN system. So here I am trying to just go for it. As language learners, we know that we have to speak, we have to read, we have to write, we have to listen in order to gain fluency in our chosen language. So I am literally trying every single day just to use the language as much as I can. Russian is incredibly difficult. So simplifying the language for me was one way that I learned would be easier to pick up on the sound and the kind of guttural uh, noises that your the back of your throat had to make. I was really just trying. Thankfully, in this particular cafe that I was in, the, the, the reception was really welcoming. And so I would just keep trying and trying and trying and trying to communicate that I want tea by not using English. And finally, it just was not working out right. So I was pointing around and doing all sorts of whatnot with the menu. And then I asked the waitress once she understood, you know, how, how do I say this in Russian properly? And so she gave me uh, an expression, which in Russian is give me tea, please. So when I went back home just to reflect on, you know, the, the different phrases that I had learned from the day, this one really struck me where I'm hearing this very direct response or very direct question, give me tea. We can't do this in English if we were to, you know, go out into any kind of restaurant in a cordial environment and just say, give me something. It's too direct in our culture. Mm -hmm. But for Russian culture, it was it was fine. It wasn't seen as offensive. And I'm sure there were other elements where it was clearly that I was a foreigner and trying to learn the language. So I, I do understand there was some elements there. But I noticed as I kept living in Moscow that there was a, an abruptness or a directness that we would see in English speaking cultures that was not necessarily the same in Russian speaking cultures. Right. Fast forward, I'm working more and more with clients in Russia and France and Egypt, et cetera, and learning about how they were communicating. 
in English-speaking professional environments, as those are my clients, the, the professionals that are using English for their day-to-day -day communication, I realized that there were loads of mistakes <laughs> that were being made that were they to be in an, a fully-fledged English-speaking environment, it would be received very abruptly. Mm. And I think a lot of times when we think about language barriers and cultural barriers, these are some of the reasons why the stereotypes ensue. It's because of a misunderstanding in intonation, a misunderstanding in the way that we want to use language more effectively. It's misunderstood. So I saw a need for this book. Why not write everything that I know as I've been working for, well, I mean, now it's been almost 19 years, but at that time it was about 17, 16, 17 years. Why not just write everything that I know from working in these professional environments? I was able to get all the way up to an international level. So I saw a lot of diplomacy and how language was used effectively. And I wanted to be able to do that for my English speaking clients, but I wanted them to have something different. I wanted them to have a book that was written in simplified English so that even though they are non-native English speakers, they could be able to read the book and understand because it was literally designed for them. The syntax is simplified. The diction is strategic. It uses professional communication, uh, professional words that you would find in a, in a professional environment. And it deliberately puts it into this book so that they can understand and learn and read at the same time. Those were the goals for the book. Oh, and you certainly pulled it off because uh, in reading it, it it was easy, as you say, to go through and pick up what were the kind of concepts that you were trying to, first of all, introduce and then reinforce and then give examples and then give practical ideas about how your readers could use them. And one of the concepts that you come back to at several points in the book is the importance of simplicity. So mm. when making requests, you say, keep it simple. Uh, when giving information, you say less is more. And then again, when discussing legal matters, making sure that you're very clear in the points that you're trying to get through. So in a professional situation, mm. would this be your primary advice for language learners? I mean, regardless of language, just trying to, as you say, keep it simple. It's a really good question. And I think when I when I think about this, I want to be able to say off the bat, yes, go ahead and just simplify the language. But I've now lived it, I've lived all over this world. I'm very sensitive to the fact that there are so many different communication styles that are based on the culture and that the cultures are very different, especially when you're comparing to a westernized environment, which that's where English is coming from. So I'm hesitant to say, for all foreign languages, just simplify the language. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't rush to say that because I don't know all languages and I've lived in many cultures where it might be better or it might be more effective to change the way that your language is communicated. I just don't know. What I would say though is if you are, if you are learning a language and you are not at that C1, C2 level, I would even push it to B2. If you're not at that upper intermediate 
that advanced stage where you can listen, you grasp the concepts quickly, you can write fluidly without having to make too many changes. If you're not there yet, then perhaps a better way forward is to simplify the language. And what I mean by simplifying the language that I think language learners will understand is revert to a system, one subject, one verb, one object per sentence, especially if you are in the intermediate level or lower. Stick with that format. That's what I mean by simplify the language. If you know complex words and vocabulary, okay, you know more power to you. But in terms of the syntax, syntax meaning in terms of the way you structure the actual sentence, if you haven't developed a, a vast grammatical kind of vocabulary for want of a better term, then keep the way you form your sentences simple. Because in that way, the receiver, someone who might be a native speaker of the language you're learning, will definitely understand the pattern of one subject, one verb, one object. I've seen that in Russian language. I've seen that in French and Spanish. We know that with those two languages, French and Spanish, it shares, it, it shares a root with Portuguese. We know it shares a root with Italian. So this is not going to be a vastly different concept. Now, I don't speak any Asian languages yet, that, that is on the to-do list, so I don't know what that sentence structure will look like, but for this part of the world where, for the languages that I've already mentioned, that kind of simplified structure will be understood. So again, if you're, on, if you're learning a language and you haven't yet got to that kind of fluency level where you can express yourself without too much hesitation, might be better to just use a simple form of a sentence rather than trying to make it all complex in the way that you would naturally speak. So just to give some background to what you said, so you're really, you're talking about C1, C2 and, and B2 levels. So these are the, these are the CEFA levels, the, uh, common, the common European framework of reference. And most of these are broken down by what, uh, what we can generally term as can-do statements. And I think until mm. you get into the C level, it doesn't really make reference to a first language user. They're mostly trying to build up that kind of confidence level. So if you are a second or third language user of English listening to this interview, it's a good place to go and start and ask yourself, can I do these things? Because they're a very useful and, in my opinion, supportive checklist and then targets that you can set yourself in the future. So most of the people that I'm working with, the students I'm working with are at around the, the B1, B2 level. So mm -hmm. Japanese high school takes you up to A2. And so nothing that you put into your pre-university work should go outside of A2, but most students do because they want to get into a, a decent university, take an entrance exam. So at C1, C2, for the people who may not know, uh, is, is quite a high level. You're, you're operating at a level where you, as you say, you could be expected to speak fluently. And one of the things that you bring up in your book is on the topic of politeness. And I would agree that mm -hmm. if you're at the B2C1 barrier, then this is where you start taking control of the language and using yeah. it for your own purposes. And, you know, you, you do bring up the idea that politeness, which requires this kind of careful construction and, you know, perhaps even forward planning, you say it can be a time saver when discussing the use of modal verbs. Could you give us some examples from your own life? Because you say in the, in the chapter that being polite 
has been a great time saver for you. Can you give us some examples yeah. of, of where that has actually happened for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, a professional example and then a, I guess, uh, a personal life example. A professional example, I think, would be um, when I made a horrible mistake. Um, I was working um, at the UN and I had an ambassador that, was, that I was arranging this trip for, uh, for him to go abroad. So he needed his passport. And this particular type of arrangement, I had to send the passport off to DC, couldn't do it in New York where I had been living at that time. So here I am sending the passport and the documents, going paranoid and doing all my checklists, <laughs> making sure everything is there, only to the point where I think maybe two or three days had passed and I'm not getting back uh, my envelope with this passport that my boss needs to use to go abroad. His passport is still in DC. Couldn't figure out what was going on. So I called up the embassy that had the passport to do some documents and to arrange the travel. And the embassy had told me, oh, well, there's no return envelope inside of this package, so we can't actually send it back to you. So you can imagine my panic that I'm being told my, my boss's passport cannot come back to me. This mm. is crazy. I had already developed this system of, you know, using modals to be extremely polite and um, kind of sweet talking people with my construction emails. So this was already something that I had, I had down packed. So my goal was how do I get this passport when I can't fly over there, I can't take a train over there, I have to stay in New York and what am I gonna do? I called up the embassy and essentially I had asked for my opposite number in the embassy who I could write out to um, on a peer level. And once they gave me that contact details and information, I used loads of models with the other structures that I, I kind of mentioned in the book, you know, start with something kind and polite and, you know, acknowledge that someone is more than just a machine, that they're human. And so in forming this email and forming this, uh, this request, I was essentially asking him, I made a mistake. I can't get this passport. Can you, can you arrange for someone to pick up our colleague's passport so that we mm -hmm. can, you know, send him off? And so when he did that, when he had arranged the entire system and he had people going out and grabbing, the, grabbing this, uh, this passport and, and bring it back, for me, it was, a, it was an acknowledgement to see that my colleagues who I did not know, never met before, never had any engagement with before, were kind enough to do this kind of going above and beyond and kind of saving the day by doing this very, well, it's a large gesture, but in some ways sure, a small team, sure. by doing this gesture of, yeah, of grabbing this, this passport that it had nothing to do with the responsibilities, it had nothing to do with their job, it had nothing to do with any of that. So it was a way to see that I got an immediate response I got very little back and forward communication. I got an arrangement for a mistake that I had made that was just awful and terrible. And I got the results within, I think it was maybe another day or so. It was a very, mm. very fast turnaround where I got the passport back. All of that was a very big lesson to me. One, if you acknowledge your colleagues are more than just a machine. Mm -hmm. Two, if you approach them extremely respectfully, especially when you're the one at a disadvantage and I was the one at a disadvantage, and three, if you acknowledge the support that they did, like, give them great feedback or, you know, 
send some congratulations on their behalf to the boss, that kind of thing. If you acknowledge that a person is more than just a machine and you use these kind of models to do it, you're using what is already polite language. It has a wealth of benefit because people are much more likely to respond positively when you approach them positively than respond abruptly or negatively or just in a bad mood. It's it's a whole nother different kind of response. Mm. And I think that is very much based on the fact that you are acknowledging that a person is human. And those kind of modal words do that. They, they really do kind of reinforce that, 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 idea, that understanding of respect. So that would be one kind of example that I can remember from my past where making sure that I constructed that email and constructed that request because I was the one that was at a disadvantage really worked to my, my benefit. I think another time that I can think of, um, which was a bit more fun, I think, is when um, when I went to a hotel, again in New York, I was there on vacation at this time. I, the, the line had been long, people were getting a little annoyed because it was just taking so long, but I really do live by these words of just be very, very kind um, as much as possible uh, with the way in which you speak, especially if you're speaking to um, service industry professionals. Mm. So when I got up to the counter and I used all of these kind of magic details that I kind of that I put inside my book, the response that I got even shocked me. I got a room upgrade mm-hmm. uh, when I did not even request for it. After I got to my room upgrade, the woman had called, I think within 10 minutes to say that the basket of goodies that they usually leave inside of the hotel, that that was um, free for me to, to have, just the wine, the, the chocolates, etc. just have it at your own leisure. And there was something, there was something else that they had done. I remember it was three specific things because I wrote about it on Facebook, but those that gesture I remember so well because the woman when I got to her spoke with her and when she had closed the deal and said you know I'm upgrading your room it was very visible on her face that most people just see her as a machine right and they don't see that she is a actual person that's working there and this again this engaging with engaging with much more uh, polite vocabulary more indirect um, just being just being a human, really, it really did change the nature of even that kind of relationship. And that is a customer to, to service relationship. So I do encourage this a lot because I think that the outcomes are much more positive in the end. Mm. And it can speed things along much faster if you if you approach it with that kind of sensitivity. Yeah, no, I do, for one, believe that politeness is a virtue and that it's something that when you express it towards someone, you're more likely to get it back. Like human beings are kind of receptive and, and they, they understand these kind of signals that, that you're putting off. So if you're, if you're being polite and respectful, regardless of the person that you're speaking to, you're more likely to get that back. And uh, as you may know, I live in Japan and when you're writing an email, it, you, you should, regardless of the person's position in the company, in you, you add like sama to the end of their name, which is a, a highly respectful honorific. And then usually the first thing you'd write is uh, which it did, which I always, when I'm writing to my English colleagues in the Japanese system, I always write, I hope this email finds you well. A colleague of mine once 
picked me up on this and said, why do you always start your emails with, I hope this email finds you well? This sounds disingenuous. I said, well, first of all, yeah. I do hope this email finds you well. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I, I, do, I, I do hope that for you, but also that this is how we should be conditioned to work within the Japanese system. And then at the end, the Japanese phrase for it is dozo yoroshiku onegai tashimasu, which just means, you know, let's, let's have a, a positive working engagement together in the future. And so I, I do think that even though these phrases might seem from the outside to be unnecessary, I mean, let, let's get right to the details, by following a, a pattern of courtesy, I think that you, I do get better, I think service is the wrong word in, in a university, but I do have a, a better relationship with the people who, with whom I, I contact. I just want to pull up, uh, because you've, you've mentioned this point, and uh, on for the people who are reading along at home on page 13 of your book, you have uh, the, the four tonal categories in professional communication. So if you can imagine four squares laid next to each other, and so in the upper left quadrant, you have formal, in the upper right, you have informal, in the bottom left, you have direct, hard, and on the bottom right, you have indirect, soft. So uh, is this a, a matrix of how you would suggest that people organize their communications based on the circumstances? Yeah, um, so with that, those four quadrants, those four different blocks, um, when, I, when I was coaching um, business English clients and was trying to make a visual about how to move between these four quadrants, um, I, I, I structured it in that way because I could circle two quadrants, whether they were right underneath each other, right across from each other, or diagonally from each other. Mm -hmm. And I could just highlight one individually to really focus in on what that quadrant looks like in English communication or an English speaking environment. So the reason that I have it like that is because sometimes you can use formal language and you can use indirect language. Sometimes you can use formal language and you can use direct language. Sometimes it can be informal and it can be both direct and indirect. Sometimes it can be informal and it can be indirect. That last one, I usually always caution is the worst because when you are informal, it's very friendly. It, it, it shows that you have some kind of knowledge or on a personal level, you know someone. And when you are in when you are direct, um, there usually isn't any kind of um, ambiguity as to who to whom you're talking about. So to use both of that to show that you are very formal, with, very uh, informal with someone, very friendly with someone, and you're speaking to them with language that could maybe be offensive if you don't know them on a very personal level. This particular grouping of quadrants, the informal with the direct language is usually a no-no. So I, I use that visual to help people visually see what I'm trying to explain about the differences between these four different, um, these four different language devices. Japanese and Asian languages are often seen as kind of uh, indirect. I mean, there's a there's a phrase in Japanese, kuki or yomen, which just means read the air, which uh, is best translated as, you know, read between the lines. So understand mm -hmm. the things that people are not saying. 
based on the context. And it's something that's notoriously difficult to teach in a second language to actually, well, if you're not, if you're not a, a fluent user of the language, just to calm down, read the room, know the context and understand what's being expected of you. And, and sometimes what's not being expected of you, um, given that you're not a first language user, as someone who works in the language field and is, uh, it's important for uh, me to understand how to integrate things into language curricula. How do you think we could encourage Asian users of English to be more direct, like less indirect, mm. like, like knowing how to, as you say, say what you want and then maybe negotiate the, the, the particulars of it instead of the traditional indirectness? Do you have any advice or ideas about that? It's not the first time I've been asked this question. And I, I, it's similar to one of the other earlier questions you had asked. Again, it's, it's such a difficult, sensitive topic, knowing that the cultures really do inform even how you speak another language. I would say when it comes to maybe Asian cultures that are interested in learning how to be more direct, to maybe start small and follow the system of simplifying the sentence where you focus on that main verb, the, the action that you want to take place, and you use what I would call active voice constructive, uh, construction for being direct, meaning the subject comes first, then you have your verb, and then you have your object. Active voice is not a tense, it's a tone. So when you put act, when you use active voice to express what it is that you want to convey or what you want to see have happen, it is more direct in tone. So that might be one way to begin to start just becoming more comfortable with learning how to engage more in a direct environment. From there, I would say it sounds corny. It sounds it sounds a bit simple, maybe even sophomoric, but watching watching TV shows in the culture that you're trying to engage with, the language that you're trying to engage with, this is really helpful when it comes to learning how directness is expressed in that culture. So I do encourage to watch television, watch the, watch, uh, the, not the news, but watch uh, Netflix, watch uh, movies or TV shows. It really does help to show what a particular culture may, may look more like when they're using direct language. Those would be the two areas that I would say to focus on first. Yeah, I know we have some readers who are not uh, linguists. So just to make a, a distinction between what an active or a passive construction would be an active mm. an active construction would be i did it whereas a passive construction mm -hmm. would be it was done so mm -hmm. so it it becomes a more diffuse situation so uh, making an active sentence sometimes is is difficult for some learners because they they don't might want to take responsibility for something they might want to convey the action rather than the person who did it um, but that would be a, a difference between it and um, the, the use of tvs and movies so when you were learning russian when you were dealing with people from different cultures did you do that did you watch the local tv and, and learn from their use of the language absolutely did i understand what i was watching no. i would 
would say not the majority of it. No, you really start looking at body language and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how the eyes start moving and are they smiling at like you you look for those things. But did it help? Really did help because I think again, a lot of times if you don't live outside of your cultural environment, you can become inundated with stereotypes and have a preconceived notion about what a particular culture or what a particular region of the world is like. When in fact, when you live in that region, it's, it's often very different. So when I was watching TV, either in Russia or where I was watching TV, even in Egypt or in France, it, it, it really was a very different experience even between these three regions of the world. And you get to hear how the language is spoken. You get to hear how their body language expresses the words that they're saying. And even though you may not know every single word, hearing those intonations, hearing the pronunciations, it really does help. So I did it all the time, as much as I could do it. I'm not so much of a TV watcher, but when I live abroad, I do try to make sure that I engage as much as I can with media, whether it's through the radio, whether it's listening to music of that region or watching television. I, I think it's a great idea. Could you give us some examples? Because I've, I've, I've worked with people from Russia, from France, from Egypt, from uh, so many different countries. I was asked to list it once and I, I, I think I stopped at about 25. But was, what did you notice that was different from your, your own background in particularly in terms of body language and the way that people interact with each other in kind of natural environments. One of the things that was called to my attention that I didn't, I just don't realize because I like being around people is that I'm very animated and I know I am, I, I'm fully aware of that. So whether I'm coaching or I'm teaching or just normally talking, my body is doing all sorts of things. My hands are going all over the place. My eyes are going all over the place. I'm really, really excited usually because I'm in another country, I'm in another culture and I'm exploring. And, and this is just part of my personality. So one, a lot of the feedback that, the consistent feedback that I would get regardless of what region of the world I was in was that I'm very animated. And in cultures like Russia, and I would say probably in Egypt, that kind of animation is not so much so part of the cultural environment, or at least I didn't really see it that much as part of the cultural environment. It's much more reserved. In body language, it's much more reserved. Now, given I wasn't necessarily fully engaged in a professional environment because clients would come to me rather than me living and working in a professional environment and, and interacting with all of an office. So that dynamic, I do think, is going to inform a bit on how I see body language. Instead, most of my time was just walking around streets, walking around museums, being with friends and making friends and going to cultural events and things like that. So the, the body language that I saw there was much more reserved compared to my body language. Now I'm Caribbean, my, my roots start from the Caribbean. So in Caribbean culture, body language is just part of how we communicate. So it is very much part of my, my makeup. But when I, when I think of it in terms of something like France, I think from what I saw in French culture, they, they're a little bit more animated, closer to the way that I would interact. So there are more similarities there than I would see in some place like in Moscow. Those would be pretty probably the differences that I would see. Yeah, I remember the first time that I started this podcast with, with John and 
he specifically had to tell me because I'm a quite animated person when I'm, for example, when I'm in the classroom, when I'm in front of a, a, a lecture, when I'm giving a presentation, he was just like, okay, uh, first advice, stop moving your hands so much. Is that because you, mm. you, you can hear it on, on the microphone, you can hear it. And so I've, I've had to work very hard in, you know, keeping myself uh, less animated. But I, I do take your point that I think British people are, I'm from, I'm from England. I think British people are slightly less animated than our, you know, European cousins. And so when I would go to France traveling and through to like Italy and places like that, I would notice that, you know, there's a lot more animation. It was a lot more important in the kind of cultural makeup of their language that not only the words, but also the expression and uh, the people from uh, mm. Portugal and, and, and France who I've worked with um, since then has certainly been something that I've noticed. Could I ask you about the process of writing this book? So you said maybe this started two or three years ago. Could you give us some idea of what the steps were? Did you put in a proposal to a publisher? Did you write it first and then and then shop it around? Like, how did you get to the point where you have your own book being sold on Amazon? It was a really lovely process and one of the worst processes I've ever decided to undergo at the same time. Um, I started the book, I think it was 2018, and I was living in Moscow at that time. Uh, I've already explained why I started the book. The process of writing the book, when I had started, ideas were flowing out of me. I think the part one, essentially the majority of part one was written within maybe a year, maybe less, I wouldn't be surprised. It was just flowing out. And I would, I think the only reason that it took up to a year was there were time periods that I really needed to focus in on Russian. So I would just stop thinking in English and commit everything to Russian. That's how much this book was flowing out of me. For part two, strangely enough, part two was what I was actually teaching to these clients. And yet I couldn't physically get the words out to construct part two. Part two took essentially two years to write because I couldn't, I just, I wasn't inspired. I, I kind of lost willpower. Um, it just, it, what I had written before was, was enough for the clients that I was teaching, even in, in France, it seemed to be enough. So I didn't have enough willpower um, to really focus in on constructing part two, writing the words for part two and getting it done. Um, didn't matter that I was talking to friends and family, it just wasn't coming. Finally, when I moved back here due to COVID, I was living in Paris at the time and I decided to move back to the States in November because of the COVID crisis. I really figured, you know, I'm in a place where I'm, I'm on contract with with the UN and I have time to really make this book something that I that I would be proud of. I'm not traveling, I'm not in planes, I'm not doing this whole, you know, backpackers kind of life. I can really make this something special. So earlier this year, I buckled down, put my nose to the grindstone, try to block out everything. And I just wrote, I, it, whether it was written well or not, I, I, I didn't care. I just wanted to get the book done. When I finally got it done, I needed to reread it and you know do the first kind of edits and that sort of thing and just edit and edit and edit and edit and edit. 
I had already been looking for publishers and was entertaining the idea of self-publishing too. I didn't know what I had wanted to do for my first book, self-publish or look for publishers. I think because the COVID crisis, or at least the, pers the perspective that I was seeing from the States, the COVID crisis seemed to kind of ignite creativity and content creation, at least from the States, in a way that I hadn't seen before, where people were popping up with all sorts of new business ideas and this kind of energy of building your own empire or building your own platform or building your own resources. And I really wanted to explore that. So I chose the self-publishing route. I wanted to learn about the publishing or publishing industry. I wanted to learn about what it meant to become an author from the ground up, what it meant to market, what it meant to do sales. I wanted to learn that business. If there's something that I've learned from the UN, when you understand the system in which you're working, it is much easier, much, much easier to navigate that system. So I decided, let me do my first book where I'm the one that's responsible for everything now that I understand what publishing looks like. And from there, if I want to do my next book, which I'm currently working on with a publisher, at least I understand what a publisher is doing. And if I want to do it again through self-publishing, if this kind of book tour, virtual book tour that I'm on is more successful than I had thought it would be, then maybe I'll try doing self-publishing. But it really came down to willpower, figuring out what it was that I wanted at the end. I, I say end with quotes around the word end because I, I, I'm still kind of forming that for myself, but I do have a vision for what I think this would look like um, when this is done. And, um, and then just planning my next step in terms of who I saw myself as a, ca a career woman, where, where I wanna be in my career at this stage in time. Understanding those three facets are probably what had led me to take this particular path that I'm on now. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. And it certainly feeds into a, a similar experience that we had when we spoke to uh, Dr. Gabrielle Dacamus about her publishing her work on art in the nuclear age and all the not just the writing but being able to edit understanding things like copyright using images yeah. how to work with your your editor and have it building that relationship up and uh, although she said she wasn't planning the next book she was planning the next book she wasn't writing the next book yet like it gave her that process that uh, once you as you say as you know the system then uh, being able to navigate it makes it easier. It's also one of those other things that once you've done it and then you take that skill to somewhere else, if someone tells you, no, that can't be done, and you say, yes, it can, exactly. and this is how I did it, maybe if we work exactly. together, we can do it in a, in a more simple way. So that experience, I think, uh, helps you uh, down, down the road. And of course, when you do publish your second book, you'll be more than welcome to come back on Lost in Citations because this is a good example, as you say, of upskilling during uh, the, the COVID era. Like there was no way that this podcast would have occurred if not for coronavirus. John came to me and said, look, I'm gonna start this new thing. We can't go to conferences. We can't meet people. How about we do it virtually? And it's led to what we have now. So, um, and also just to put some uh, information, as you said, that, so there's part one of the book, there's part two of the book. Part one of the book is titled, Keep It Simple, Keep It Safe. And this is where we, where you go through what we've been speaking about in terms of formal and informal and direct and indirect and and part two 
uh, is about the three basic types of communication. So if I could just give you those those three things and and maybe you could give me some comment on why it was more difficult to 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 produce the content. So the the uh, the three basic types of communication and the secondary forms of communication. So the three basic types of communication are linked are listed as when you want something, when you must provide information, and then contracts and money matters. And then the secondary form is building a workplace relationship and performance review. So first of all, why was this more difficult than the first part to write? And could you give us some pertinent information from this section of the book? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the answer to your first question is I have absolutely no idea. And I think <laughs> that as honestly as possible, because quite literally, the book before it was even in text form, really started with part two, it started with the three basic types of communication. My, my clients my clients in Russia at that time, they really seemed to be getting a wealth of knowledge when I was breaking down the language about how to communicate in English speaking environments with this essential format that there are really three basic types of communication when you want something, I mean basic types of communication. When you want something, when you need something, you need to provide information or when you're dealing with those legal kind of issues, anything that has to deal with money, that's pretty much it when it comes to professional communication. So for the fact that the fact that it took so long to produce that, I think, I think one, I think really the, the reason why it probably took so much longer was probably burnout. I've heard that some writers don't write in a linear format. They, they have an idea and they kind of flush it out from that idea. And then maybe they'll make an outline from there and then they'll kind of just grow it more organically, grow their book or their ideas more organically. I've heard some write very linearly. I think probably one of the most famous writers out there who wrote in a, liter a linear format was J.R.R. Tolkien, um, The Hobbit, mm. The Lord of the Rings. He wrote linearly from the beginning, wrote, 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 wrote to the end. If he didn't like it, threw it away, started again. I think I have a mindset where if I have an idea, I will start from the beginning of that idea and then write it all the way to the end. And if I'm stuck in the middle, I can't get to the end and I can't even go to another section. I'm just stuck. So I, when I started the book, actually writing the book, I started from the very beginning and I didn't even have a general outline. I just started writing what I know. And I knew that I was eventually going to get to this somewhat or somewhat section that says three basic type of communication. I just didn't know when it was coming. I didn't know it was going to exist in a part two. I just didn't know. Once I realized, oh, I can really format this in two particular ways that's beneficial for language learners, I can give them theory and then I can give them practical, practical content, which is exactly how I teach. I teach the theories of something, whether it's grammar, whether it's a concept like phrasal verbs, whatever it is. I teach theory first and then we delve into what it physically actually looks like, feels like, how you would engage with it, the practical aspect. Once I realized that, 
I had a, an outline and I knew that the three basic forms of communication was going to come into the practical aspect of it. I was just burned out. I think I was just flat burned out by the time I got to part two. Mm. So I would say I, part two, Part two has a very practical element to it because it does have example emails about what these situations could look like. Yeah. But I also wanted to uh, include a section where in, in professional environments, we know that there are performance evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to get to this place where it would essentially say, what does all of the theory and all of the practical information look like in one form. Mm. When you can't just be formal, you can't just be indirect, you can't just be uh, uh, informal and you can't just be direct. What about the times where you might have to use all four of them in one system? Right. And that's what I really thought was a performance review. You may have really good information to say about your, your, your colleague, Mm -hmm. At the same time, you might need to provide feedback. How do you move between these four quadrants? When should you go to active voice? When should you move to passive voice? What does that look like in a fully fledged performance evaluation? Mm -hmm. So that was that second aspect yeah. of, of part two. And that's why you see that division. So I'm really hoping that the book, it's a short read. I think Amazon has it as two and a half hours of reading time. It's a short book, but I, I intentionally wanted it to be short because I wanted it to feel like it was your, your, your kind of go-to survival guide that's in your back pocket that you can quickly look up a reference and say, oh, here's one way that I might be able to solve this problem if I'm trying to address it in a formal and indirect way. And this is what a practical email might look like. I have a format, I have a template. I can just change this person's name here. I can just change the information here. I have something to work with. I really wanted it to be practical and informative at the same time. I would say that was a really good point uh, in going through. So page 45, six, and then, and then moving forward uh, before we get to the contract, you do include uh, lots of kind of sample emails and structures and uh, but also in the kind of concurrent commentary of why you should do this so yeah. um, saying that this is this is a light-hearted salutation or this is a direct salutation or this is kind of a, a group oriented salutation like we've all done a great job now let's kind of and like different ways of activating the person who you're speaking to and I thought that was a that was a really uh, useful way because oftentimes texts don't give you that kind of yeah, and, but also exactly. the commentary are not they might tell you what to do but not why and so yeah. I'm I'm regular listeners to the podcast will know that I'm I'm kind of obsessed with the with the question of why and if you can activate a student and they know why they're doing something then they're more likely to be motivated to do it than just being told do it so to kind of finish today's interview what do you think you learned most by the process of writing this book and and essentially how is that going to inform your 
your future writings? Like how maybe have you become more efficient in your work or like, mm -hmm. how do you feel that maybe the second or the third or the fourth book is going to be uh, helped by the first? That is a really, really good question. Maybe two distinctive things that I can think of off the top of my head. Knowing that, as I said before, I seem to have an idea and then work from the very beginning of my thought process all the way to the end of the idea first. I think what I've learned from this experience is to become disciplined with having an outline. And I did not have that outline when I first started writing this book. The outline came as I was writing it. So for the book that I'm working on right now, I made sure that I took as much time as I needed to write an outline. I sat down, I think it was 10 hours, literally 10 hours nonstop, I had water with me. I just wrote an outline. Every single detail that I wanted to write about, my book is about um, the job hunting process. So how to prepare your CV, how to prepare your cover letter and the interview, how to do all of this if you're looking to get into working for international organizations like the UN. So this time I started with an outline. That would probably be the first thing that I hope I will never go back on again because it, it is very helpful. I think the second thing that this process, the writing process has taught me um, really isn't so much about the writing process. I chose to go self-publishing, which has taught me so much about being your own PR agent, um, being your own editor, um, then investing in a better editor, which is I'm seeing is so important. Um, it's taught me everything from design. I have an, I, thankfully I have an art degree. I have a background in arts, uh, in the fine arts, so I can do my own graphic design, but it definitely taught me about how to do it in a way for books, which is a completely different process than what I usually do as a painter. So it's taught me, it's, it's, it's teaching me all of these other aspects that you need after the book is done. And the one is really marketing. It, it's, it's, I can have the best written book on the planet. And if I don't know how to market it, it's useless because no one will read it. I can have the worst written book, the worst, and everyone on the planet could read it because I know how to market it. Mm. I, right now, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been in the UN system since 2012. So my mind is very much kind of formatted for this you go to work from you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock, you come back home around 7 o'clock and you're very much in this kind of uh, very structured environment that for me had very little to do with marketing, if ever at all. And now I'm switching into this mindset where I have to learn about doing sales, doing marketing, doing CRMs and all these other language things that I've never heard before. It feels like a new language. This book process is teaching me about that. And that's effective because I will be I'm I'm soon going to be releasing another book, probably by the beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. So it's it's beneficial in on both of those facets in terms of writing um, anything else, I would say at this time. I think one of the best feedback, one of the best feedback that I got from a friend who read just a bit of the book while it was in process was that 
I understood my target audience well. And she was a non-native English speaker. And that was important to me because if she could mm -hmm. understand it, then I, I knew I was, I was writing, I was doing what I had wanted to do with the writing, the actual language. And she had told me that the, the way that I was writing was clear and informative and understandable. And so that really taught me about know your target audience and know how your target, target audience receives written information. My target audience for my next book is not necessarily going to be non-native English speakers. So now that I understand how to move between target audiences, I'm really being aware that this book, I simplify the language and this book that's coming up, it is for native speakers. If you're a non-native English speaker, great, go ahead and read it. But it is written for native English speakers. So the language does have complex sentences. It's much, some sentences are much longer. So I think those would be the only kind of aspects that I'm learning so far from what I've done to what I'm doing now. Well, uh, as I say, you're very welcome to come back and promote that book as well. And uh, I hope that the promotion of this book uh, does very well. We'll make sure that we provide all of the links to you know, the Amazon sales link and also any other links that you'd like us to include in the show notes. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. We've been speaking with uh, Natasha Broody, who has published the book, Give Me Tea, Please. And as I say, we'll provide as many links as possible. I hope the promotion goes well. Thank you very much for your time today. And I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me here and for releasing this to your, your audience. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.